All right, good. Good, good, good. Now, like I said the other week, the, uh, the good thing about working through a book is that you just hit what's in there, okay? You, 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 don't, you can't pick and choose. That lacks integrity to do that. You have to work through the book and you hit whatever you hit. Um, I think that's a strength. I think that if, if you only preach topically and thematically, what you tend to do is you either tend to simply end up preaching your own little uh, favourites, favourite topics, um, or you simply preach what you feel the church needs to really hear at the moment, um, which I'm sure there's, there's value in that. Because all you're ever doing, the danger is, is that you never really build a, 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 a breadth of foundation. Okay? So what happens is people become very strong on certain topics that are always preached about, but on other areas, really, to be honest, not, you know, not being well taught in the word in those subjects. So the beauty of this is that we're just going to hit all kinds of stuff. So tonight's uh, message is on celibacy. Okay? Thank you. It's nice to have some response. It's nice to have some response. You know, celibacy used to be, um, used to be like, uh, highly esteemed in, in the church. In fact, for centuries, um, it, was, um, it, was, it was viewed as the, the preferred option for Christians um, for all kinds of different reasons, some good, some bad. Um, the, obviously, the monastic communities began to develop around Christendom from very, very early on, the monks and the nuns. And in the early stages, a lot of that was to do with uh, particularly living simply, looking after the poor, and devotion to prayer. And so, so a lot of these monastic communities would pray literally for hours, up at four or five, praying for hours, and then um, and, and, and looking after the poor. I mean, incredibly uh, exemplary in many ways. Um, and, then, and then obviously as time went on, and um, particularly the church in the West, the Catholic church, actually d- developed kind of some doctrines around the whole thing of singleness and uh, marriage and stuff. And I'm not sure if the Vatican have changed it now, but I know for a while the Vatican actually taught that sex was a result of the fall and was a kind of corrupt kind of thing at its heart, which obviously would help you then to understand why singleness was exalted and extolled in the Catholic Church. It was seen as more pure. Um, And obviously in, in the Catholic Church there are priests, there's, there's, a, there's a divide between what they call priests and laity. Now, we, we don't concur with that as, as a Protestant church, a Reformed church. We would say, no, we are the priesthood of believers. There's no, we don't have that priesthood and laity. Um, obviously, you may have some people who work full-time for the church, but they don't have any more access to God than those who don't. They're not in any way more, more something. They simply have been released to be able to give themselves full-time um, to serve in, but we don't have that. But um, but but obviously in the in the Catholic Church there is that divide, and they would say if you're going to be a priest, you've got to be single, you've got to be celibate, you can't be married. And um, obviously we've seen lately a lot of uh, stuff coming out in the press in terms of where some of the difficulties this has caused. And so I'm just trying to paint a picture of the whole subject really at the start and say, um, up until 500 years ago there was a lot of celibacy in the church per se and then the reformation comes and a lot of that changes marriage becomes much more exalted where we're probably in a position now where celibacy intentional singleness is rarely spoken of and rarely exalted or extolled and uh, I think hopefully through today's passage that's going to be a challenge somewhat so we're going to have a good time um, our leader was celibate um, uh, the book that we uh, believed to be God's word, his revelation, um, speaks very highly of marriage, very highly of singleness. And so we need to make sure that we are esteeming and extolling both. So that's where we're going today. So let's read, shall we, chapter 7 together. Next week is chapter 7 again on marriage. 
Okay, so just to say, um, I will obviously hit on marriage a bit today, but we're really going to be looking at the whole thing of celibacy and singleness, and then next week we'll be focusing on marriage just to give you a feel for where we're going. We're going to read the whole chapter together. Now, it's, not, it's not a chapter that I know all the answers in, by the way, there's some mysterious stuff in here, but I'll try and help you on the way through just to give you some clarity of things that are particularly um, mysterious. Okay, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then it's probably in quotes at this point, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. End quote. So most likely the Corinthians wrote to Paul saying, look, as far as we're concerned, and what we can tell Paul from what you said when you were with us, this is what you think, right? Okay. So trying to get some clarity from Paul. Now we, we might be wrong, Paul, but we think you said it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Are we right? Now, perhaps the reason why um, this is a particular issue for the Corinthians is like, remember we've been looking at the city of Corinth, hugely sexually immoral, hugely promiscuous to the extent if you call someone a Corinthian, you were, you were saying you're sexually loose. You weren't saying you come from Corinth. You are saying, man, you are immoral sexually. So there was this kind of reputation. We know from last week's chapter that a lot of those who were Christians had come out of sexually immoral uh, backgrounds, very stained sexually. And so in that sense, one wouldn't be surprised if they really had lapped up um, what they thought Paul had said and thought, fantastic, it's a lot easier just to be single. After everything we've been through and all the, you know, often if you have bad experience or, uh, in terms of sexual immorality, you can just associate sex with guilt, sex with shame. It's like Paul says it's good not to have sexual relations. We want to clarify this and it seems like the whole church really in many ways, obviously apart from the guy who was sleeping with his stepmom, but uh, a lot of the church were really gunning for this single Celibacy thing. So that's the context. The rest of the chapter is Paul's response to this statement that they just want some clarity on. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Just in case you don't know, conjugal rights means this, it, basically um, the rights of your body. So basically, yeah, you know, the, uh, in a Christian marriage, the pervading atmosphere shouldn't be that one spouse is withholding um, sexual intimacy, is being resistant in that sense, but is a definite sense of uh, uh, enthusiastic compliance with one another sexually. Um, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. If they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. Now what's going on here? First of all, it's not I, the Lord. It's I, not. Is he saying this bit's scripture? This is God's word. This bit isn't? No. When he says, not I, the Lord, uh, when he says, not I, the Lord, he's saying that Jesus has given particular teaching, specific teaching in the Gospels on this. When he's saying, I, not the Lord, he's saying there's no specific teaching Jesus has given in this you could find, but out of my apostolic authority, taught by the Spirit, this is what I'm bringing. Okay? There's both the word of God, but one you can trace right back to the Gospels Jesus is teaching, the other you can't. Okay? I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife 
who is an unbeliever. So in this situation, two people are married already, one gets saved. Okay? So they find themselves in a marriage where one is a believer and one isn't. This isn't talking about um, a situation where you know, it's unbelieving, marrying believers, and that's fine. Okay? So um, if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you'll save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God's called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Don't ask me how. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything not uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, this is a really tricky bit here, because the Greek is virgins. Um, what it seems to be talking about, although it's hotly disputed, but it does seem to be talking about um, a young woman who, at this point, yeah, is, is betrothed to be married. Okay, that, that, That's why they've translated it betrothed. Different versions translate it differently because it just says virgins. It's hard to know what he's getting at here because he seems to have already spoken about those who aren't married. So it seems someone who's about to be married but is not yet married. Okay? I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she hasn't sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean. Brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. The unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's no sin. But whoever's firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control and and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. 
It's an interesting passage, isn't it? Paul definitely seems to be saying you will have much less trouble if you remain single. In his opinion, you'll be happier. You'll be able to devote yourself to the Lord in an undivided way. Um, and that's what he is saying. There's no two ways about it. So uh, we need to really unpack this, don't we? Um, to come to a place where we really are clear in what he's saying and what he's saying. We'll do a little bit of Q&A afterwards if that's going to help. I'm going to look at this by looking at the five C's of celibacy, okay? The five C's of celibacy. Um, uh, the first is creation. Now, at this point, this is the only point I'm going to really focus in on marriage more than uh, singleness because I think to understand Christian singleness, Christian celibacy, you must understand marriage. It's, otherwise, you, you, you're not, it, it won't work. Your, your mind will be skewy. So we go to creation and what we find is God creates the man. It's perfect. There's no sin. There's no brokenness, no guilt, no shame. He's uh, uh, doing the gardening, you know, having a good time. All the animals are around. All is well. But in that setting, God makes the statement, it's not good for man to be alone or make him a helper, fit for him and creates Eve, and they get married. Marriage is a good thing. There are many blessings in marriage. There is lifelong companionship in marriage. It's a beautiful thing. Okay. To, to, to grow together in increasing richness, friendship, intimacy and harmony over the years is a beautiful, beautiful thing. To grow old with someone is a lovely thing. It's a lovely thing. It's a blessing to have a kind of companionship where you, you haven't got to ring someone up and find out if they're available. It's not like you, you're available to one another for life. You live together. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a blessing. It's good. And then there's the blessing of children. It's worth saying that because I think very often kids aren't seen as a blessing. Let me tell you, they're a blessing. They're a blessing from the Lord. They're an inheritance from the Lord. They are wonderful. They turn your life upside down, but they're wonderful, okay? They're a gift from God, and we need to understand that. God esteems children in a particular way, and he gives children, he loves to give children to, 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 to couples that are married and have come together. He loves that. It's a blessing from God. And also, um, there's the blessing of sexual intimacy to, to find yourself in a, in a context where in a way that God is pleased about in a way that God is celebrating and enthusiastic of you can express your sexual desire um, to one another be intimate in a romantic intimate sexual way um, together for life it's a beautiful thing to be celebrated there are many many blessings in marriage it's important we say that to lay um, a foundation at the start uh, marriage is good it's a creation ordinance it's good Okay, and that's got to be our, our kind of underlying foundation so we don't get a skewed image. If you've come from a background where the marriage has been bad, your folks, or maybe you yourself are someone who's in the middle of a difficult marriage, or actually you're, you're a divorcee and you've, you know, or you're separated, whatever, then you know, these obviously we are all massively shaped by our experiences, and I totally respect that. Part of growing in the Lord is that we allow our minds to be renewed by the Spirit, even in contradiction to our experiences. Not that we pretend our experiences haven't happened, but we actually are allowed by the Spirit to begin to realize that even though that happened and it wasn't great, there is a better way. Okay? So marriage is good, creation ordinance. Okay? First C of celibacy. Weird but true. Okay. Second C of celibacy, the curse. Now, 
Genesis 3, we find that uh, Eve sins, Adam follows her into sin and disobedience, and then God comes and he brings judgment on them. He brings judgment on creation, brings judgment on the serpent, Satan, brings judgment on the man and woman, the prototype man and woman, Adam and Eve, and so their curse is our curse. Uh, it uh, brings judgment on the relationship between the husband and the wife, so that, so which is a curse on all marriages in that sense. So this is what we call the fall, the judgment, the curse, and it really messes up and ruins and distorts and skews everything. And so what it means is that beautiful picture I painted of marriage a moment ago, it's kind of hard to find one that looks like that, uh, you know, in this life. Anyone experienced that? You know, you sort of, sometimes it takes you to think, man, there doesn't seem to be many of those things around. What's going on there? Well, part of the curse is this. Um, Well, let me explain. Before the curse, God established this marriage to be on a man and woman, husband and wife on an equal footing, created equally in the presence of God, equally in the image of God. There to be no superiority in inferiority, the man's not ahead, that's chauvinism, the woman's not ahead, that's feminism, they're together, they're equal, it's a beautiful thing, okay, total equality, within that complementary roles, okay, so in that covenant, the man is assigned by God to be the head of that covenant, so he carries primary authority and responsibility for the state of that marriage, for the health of that relationship, not exclusive, but primary, doesn't undercut in any way the equality, same as in the Trinity, Father, Son and Spirit, Son submits to the Father, Son the Spirit submits to the, there's, a, there's, an, there's an order, a complementary thing going on there, but utter equality, co-divine, co-eternal, fully God, okay, you see the similar thing in the man-woman relationship there, uh, absolute equality, at the fall, God says to the woman, um, your desire will be for your husband. It's not nice. It's not good. You say, well, it sounds good. What's the problem? The word desire is a negative word. In the next chapter, Genesis 4, when Cain is about to murder his brother Abel, God says to him, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. It wants to master you. Sin always wants to master us. Okay? So sin wants to master you. So when God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, he's saying you want to master him. You want to take his place. You want to subvert his place. Okay? And then he says to Adam, but you will rule over her. That's his curse. You will dominate her. You will bully her. So you've got this recipe for tension. You can see now why there's so much tension in marriage, even in Christian marriage, because even though we've been redeemed in Christ and are being renewed into his image, we still carry indwelling sin. We still carry our bad experiences and wrong attitudes into it, baggage into it. And it takes years very often to shed that and replace it for deconstruction of the mind, reconstruction, renewal, so we can begin to look more and more as it should look. Okay, But some couples don't get that far. They kill each other in the process. So they're just in a hostile environment, internally there's sin, okay? But there, there's, there, so, so suddenly marriage isn't looking quite how I painted it earlier. There's this power struggle, there's this tension. The woman typically, by trying to gain her husband's place, typically is less strong physically than her husband, not always, but typically. And so rather than kind of just doofing him, she will use uh, other means to manipulate and get the upper hand, emotional manipulation, sexual manipulation, that's more typical. The guy will typically use his uh, louder voice uh, physical presence to intimidate and to bully you find that in a lot of relationships and uh, it's it's uh, it's not good it's bad it's the curse okay so we see there's the tension there um, which affects marriage negatively Um, not only that the bible says that with sin came in death so the other the other thing about marriage now is that um, for people that are going to be married or that are married, there will pretty almost certainly be a day for one spouse in that marriage. Uh, it's going to be a really really sad day, a really sad day because they're going to lose their spouse. 
uh, and, and it may well uh, be decades of a sense of incompletion that follow. Um, so my grandma and granddad, my granddad died when he was 77, good innings. My grandma died when she was 99. 22 years where during that time she loved the Lord, she was an amazing witness for God in her care home, you know, amazing shining light. But she carried with her for 22 years that sense of I want to be with, I want to be with Hori. Uh, I want to be in glory with him. That's what she wanted, 22 years. So, so when you're married, uh, for one of you, there's, there's going to be a really sad moment, most likely. It's very rare that a couple will go together. So there'll be, and, and you'll live with that. Smith Wigglesworth, that great hero of faith, he uh, lost his wife, I think about 30 years, 30 plus years before he himself died. And once in New Zealand, he was asked, what's the secret of your success? He said, I'm a broken-hearted man. And uh, I travel, this, I travel this, this, you know, the seven seas, and often, oftentimes I just sit in my cabin and weep. And, he, he, you know, this is it's reality. Um, because of death, um, there's this incredible sadness associated with marriage. Uh, and, uh, and not only that, I would also say, uh, thirdly, um, the world changed in that moment. Genesis 3, from being a playground to a battleground. And now there's lost people who need to hear about Jesus. And so, you know, that sort of famous... Well, war poster, your country needs you. It's like God's kingdom needs you. Missionaries with undivided loyalty um, who are prepared to pay any cost are needed to go and reach the lost. And it's easy to do that when you're single, generally speaking. That's what Paul's saying here. That's what Paul's teaching here. Because even for Christian couples, there can be tension around serving the Lord. Massive tension. I will say this. Paul says it in here. He's talking about Christian couples. He talks about interests being divided. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Because you can have two believers who come together, but you know what? The way they express their faith is very different. And it can be Bible wars. You know, you've got one, one person in the marriage saying, well, you know, I just feel like we need to kind of just kind of get rid of everything. I just read this verse earlier, and uh, basically, you know, everything's got to go, and then we're going to wait on the Lord for him to return it. Uh, and then the other couple says, well, I was reading Proverbs earlier. Uh, I spoke about the ant. Really wise, because it stores up <laughs> for the winter. Yeah, yeah, but Luke, Luke 14, 26, New, New Testament, you know what I'm saying? Proverbs, oh, you know, come on. I mean, so New, New, New Covenant, Old Covenant, hold on, hold on. It's all, all scriptures got breathed, you know, what, what are you saying? And the attention develops... Where basically through a number of reasons, it can be temperament, one's an ascetic, they love having nothing, yeah, the other one isn't, <laughs> they don't love having nothing, um, both content, both godly, but they're wired different ways, could be theological foundation, this is, this is big, when you first get saved and spend the first few years of your Christian life, a foundation gets laid, which is really hard to change. And so if you particularly come with very different doctrinal theological views, you're going to have Bible wars in your home. You've got to work these things through in advance because it could be you've got to talk it through because if you don't before you get married, it may, it may get to the point where you say, do you know what, we're, this is going to create nightmares in our home. We both love the Lord, so the, but this is even more than what Paul is saying. This is going to just be trouble. This isn't going to work. But just being real, yeah, this is, this is kind of, I forgot I might have been preaching about this one, but um, what am I talking about? How do I get onto this? Curse, it is the curse. I kind of forgotten how it fits. I remember this morning, but anyway. Um, tension. Tension. Keep tra- backtrack with me. Keep, keep walking with me. Tensions are rising. Tensions are rising. <laughs> All right. Why you should be single? Why you should be single? Yeah, that's the, that's the whole message. 
Oh, shoot, that's really frustrating. That's quite... Anyway, anyway. Talking about the garden chain to the battleground, which is why you need mission. They are. Thank you very much, Jill. Good to have you with us. Um, it's, nice to have a guest who's in, it's nice to have a guest who's engaged with a sermon. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. No. So, so, so there's this sense in which, actually, there's an advantage. So you read the story of William Wilberforce, tragic. Tragic, amazing man. I mean, incredible missionary. Um, nearly goes to India without his wife because she's, she's just like, she's not on the same page as him at all. Um, ends up going with her by an amazing kind of coincidence, or you know, however you want to put it. But she goes, I mean, she goes potty on location. She goes potty in India. And she just, she spends basically the rest of her time just sitting in the corner, sort of rocking backwards and forwards. I mean, it's tragic. It, it, Got to work these things through. Got to think it through. Okay, so um, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just saying you got to you got to you got to talk these things through. You have. You, you, you can't. Well, we're both believers. You got to talk it through. You got to be wise. You can't be naive and over spiritualize. And it's all going to be fine. Well, it might not. So talk it through. Okay. Either way, there'll be stuff to work through. So it's not saying, yeah, we talked, and you know, we're on the same page on everything. Now, no, it's not going to happen, right? But you got to. But if they're huge, huge things, you know, I'm called to the North Pole. I'm called to the South Pole. I mean, come on, <laughs> just do the maths and you know, make some decisions. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So there's the curse element. Okay. So it looks like at this point, really, Paul's saying, do you know what? You, you just, you, yeah, absolutely right. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, vice versa. Stay single. But then he comes in with this other thing where he basically says, but you know what? I know that not everyone has this gift. Some has this gift, some has that. So there's a change in tone. There's a change in kind of, oh, it suddenly changes. So third C, calling or gift. Um, now, what is this gift of celibacy, this gift of singleness? Um, to people I know, whilst doing marriage prep, on, whilst they were engaged, um, it came up in conversation, you know, it's a spiritual gift, celibacy. And uh, the guy put two and two together and thought, well, the Bible says you should earnestly desire spiritual gifts. And I've never desired this gift. And you've just told me it's a spiritual gift. And pause on this marriage prep. I need to go and seek God for this spiritual gift. I mean, you know, can you imagine? It, caused, it was tough, very, very tough. Um, so again, you just got to... Tussle with it before you get to that point, okay? Because it's not you don't want to be doing that, okay? So what's the deal? Well, people approach it two ways. Some people say whoever's single has the gift of celibacy. If you're single, you've got the gift, okay? Well, do you think? Well, that kind of sounds very pragmatic. I, I get that, but I think Paul seems to be talking about something more than that here. If I'm honest with you, the reading of the of the actual passage it seems more than that. I would more describe it as an ability to uh, to live your whole life single and happy. It's an ability, it's a sense of, I feel energized and inspired by this. I, I, can, I, I extol its virtues. You know, it, it makes people say things like, as far, in my opinion, you'll be happier. It makes them say things like that. Okay? I think that's a manifestation of the gift of celibacy. Okay? It's, you, it's, it's better. And you, you're convinced, no, it's amazing. I can just go there for God and, and do that. I can just go and you can just go. And when you're married, you can't just go. Okay? And if you get married and you try and live like that, you're going to have a terrible marriage. And we'll look at marriage next week. <laughs> but yeah, so, but it just, and I think that's, that's the gift. I, I, I feel more convinced that it's that, it's that second one, it's that sense you've been endowed with this real sense of, do you know what? I'm not spending my life looking over my shoulder. Is he, she there yet? Yeah? 
have I discovered the new? It's not like that. It's like, man, I'm just, I'm, you know, that's the last thing I want. I'm, this, is, this is better. It's the gift of celibacy. Um, so what am I saying about those who don't feel they're like that, but they are single? I would say God gives grace for all people, for all seasons. God gives ability to do things well. Okay? But I just, it just seems to me like Paul's... Now, I'm not going to go to the stake on this one. You disagree with me, fine. Okay? I just think that's more the flavour of the text. But he definitely comes in and he definitely brings this proviso on what he's saying and saying, do you know what? I know that not everyone can cope with this. I know that. Uh, particularly around the area of sexual temptation, particularly around the area, you know, just wanting to be sexually, romantically intimate with someone. Paul's saying, I, I get that. And, you know, if, you, if, you, if that's you, you know, you, you, you can't be like me. Okay, Paul's saying that. And I think it's beautifully freeing, beautifully liberating. You know, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really, really uh, positive thing, the way he kind of approaches it. And if you want to find out a bit more on this, if you, I won't do it now, but Matthew 14, verses 10 to 12 is where Jesus refers to what I believe is a gift of celibacy or making yourself a eunuch for the kingdom. Okay, so that's the third thing. Okay, fourthly, Christ. He was single, wasn't he? Yeah, wasn't he? You've been reading too much Dan Brown if you don't, if you don't think he was, okay? He didn't have a relationship with Mary Magdalene, okay? Uh, uh, and that wasn't some clever idea Dan Brown, Dan Brown came up with. That's been around for centuries, okay? It's, it's, it's just it's, it's silly. So, okay. Some things about Jesus. Number one, he had friends with both sexes, didn't he? Great friends with men and women. Jesus' travelling party wasn't just men. Yes, there was 12 guys, but there were other guys and there were other ladies who were close by. Good friends. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, a brother and two sisters, very good friends with Jesus. He had a good, healthy friendship with them. He modelled something wonderful, redeemed, godly and pure, which we are to look to as our model. Okay? There were other women that were travelling, travelling companions, rich ladies who actually supported the guys as they gave themselves full time to preaching the word. Okay? There it was nothing underhand in it. It was all pure and very above board. But there was this friendship, this in ministry together. This is great. As a single person to have friends with men and friends with women, I would say let's just follow Jesus' kind of model and kind of keep it in a group as well. I think that's generally wiser unless you are pursuing something uh, of a more intimate nature with one person in particular. Okay, In which case, obviously, you've got to at some point, get some time with them. But I think, generally speaking, you avoid much less misunderstanding, hurt, pain, miscommunication if you keep things in a group. Okay? Just in my experience, pastorally, that's been the case. But there's friends of both sexes. Something else about Jesus? An incredible relationship with the Father. Okay? He's a single man who had an incredible relationship with God. I want to say this, that as a single person, you, have, you do have more time to pray. Now, at this point, someone single might say, but surely when you're married, you can just pray together. Yes, you can. But there's also a lot of other things you have to do together. And you have to learn to be one flesh, which takes a lot of time and a lot of talking and a lot of patience and a lot of working things through. So there is more time to pray when you're single. There just is. And then if you're going to have kids, whoo, you're not, you're, as a married person, okay, maybe you're still both mighty prayer warriors as just married people. Then a kiddie comes along, Sorry, dear, I can't help you with the baby. I'm with the Lord. That doesn't go down too well. <laughs> that doesn't go down too well. All right? Now, there are times, and you've got to make sure that you give in space. That's marriage. That's next week. Okay, fine. Okay, so we'll forget that. But there's this incredible relationship with the Father. It's like, I was going to go and pray all night. I was going to go and pray through the night. Because I want to. Because I can. Yeah? Or I'm going to go and pray. I'm going to go and fast for the wilderness. In the wilderness for 40 days. I'm off. You can't do that as a married person. It's not going to work. 
There's going to be unbearable tension in your relationship. I'm off. Where? Wilderness. How long? 40 days. <laughs> we haven't spoken for hours. We haven't had intimate conversation for hours. And now you're enough to the wilderness for 40 days. Should I bring you pet lunch tomorrow? I'm fasting. <laughs> it's just tension all the way through. Okay? You can't just do that. When you're single, you can. You can just do it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's wonderful. Max it out. Amazing relationship with the Father. Thirdly, he lived the most perfectly complete human life as a single man. There's nothing incomplete about him. Let me say this. If you're a single person, you are complete in Christ. You are not incomplete in any way. When you get married, you then become incomplete without your spouse. Something changes at that point. Because you become one flesh, you do become... So, you, so me, without the vena, it's so right when I'm preaching, there's a lot to be desired other than that. I mean, you know, if I'm going out socially and stuff, I, I, I want her there. If people are coming around, I need her there. Um, if I go to a party, you know, I'm like, there's no theology corner, man. You know, what, I, I, need, I need Davina. Because I don't know how to just chat. She knows how to chat. I don't know how she does it. She just talks with people for hours. <laughs> about nothing. But it's really, people go away feeling all like loved and shiny. How do you do that? It's incredible. So I can stand there like that. And people think, that guy's socially adept. No, I'm not. But she's there. I'm kind of just, you know, nodding and kind of yeah, eyebrows, you know. So you fill each other's gaps. Yeah. So when you become married, that, that, that's what happens. You, you say, I'm going to become one flesh with you so that I'm no longer... I'm no longer that guy. I'm no longer that bachelor guy. I'm no longer going to live like I'm that guy. No, I'm one flip. Marriage next week. Okay, so <laughs> Jesus lives the most perfectly human life has ever been lived. Okay, if you're here as a single person and in Christ, you are complete in Christ. Utterly complete in Christ. Okay, there is nothing incomplete about you. Okay, you're complete in him. And you need to just know that. And then all married people in the church need to know that so that there can be a proper and right biblical godly esteem for those who aren't married that they're not viewed upon as those who are somehow in the wings or somehow something just hasn't quite come together for them. That thinking is utterly unbiblical and wrong. It's just completely warped, twisted, worldly, weird, strange. We've got to shed it if we carry it. Okay? It's not right at all. So... Full thing about Jesus, this incredible devotion, just this devotion to the will of the Father. You know, it's like, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross. And, it, you know, you can imagine if you had been married, I'm going to the cross. What about the kids? <laughs> but as it is, there's just this resolve. I'm going, end of story. Nothing, nothing's going to get in my way. You know, Peter tries to come in, surely not, Lord, bam, get behind me, Satan. There's just this resolve, this devotion. Paul's saying you can do that easier. Jesus models it as a single person. Fifthly, Incredible spiritual offspring. If you're a believer and you're not married, you're not going to have children. You may adopt, but other than that, you're not going to have children. Why? Because believers, we believe that the, the sexual act, it's a consummation of the covenant. It speaks of the covenant that's been made. These two have made this, this incredibly solemn covenant to become one flesh, and it's worked out. It's a picture. It's like baptism is a picture of salvation down, buried with Christ, up again. It speaks of what's happened. Sexual intercourse, sexual intimacy is exactly that, which is why it makes no sense outside of covenant. That's why it's wrong. It's just it's totally in the wrong. It's like someone just, 
unbelievably come along and say, I just want to get baptized. Why? Wow, what the heck? It doesn't make sense. Let's sit down and talk about this. That's what sex is, it? Yeah? So, but, but Jesus, now if we go to Isaiah 53, or I can just read it, you haven't got to go there, but Isaiah 53 is the most profound, probably, passage on the Bible about the cross. You want to understand what happened at the cross? This will help you more than anything in the New Testament, most likely. Okay? In terms of the- theologically, what was going on there. Now, you haven't got to be a rocket scientist to understand that the next chapter is Isaiah 54. But because of our little headings and chapter things, we tend to separate them. Yeah, you read that one day, next day you come to 54, you forget what came before. No, it flows, okay? So we read the last verse of chapter 53, talk, God talking about Jesus. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many. Um, he'll divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the, transgression, for the transgressors. 54, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, okay? There's this spiritual offspring at the moment, every moment, I don't know, about two billion um, people who, who have put their faith in Christ. He has, he has birthed them, if you like, through his act on the cross, okay? So here's a man who wasn't married, no physical offspring, but immense spiritual offspring. I believe there is a promise to those who, who, who give themselves to singleness, to be devoted to the Lord, that they will, there will be a, there's a harvest, there's something they can expect in terms of spiritual fruit and spiritual offspring that is incredible. And that should inspire you if this, if, this, if this relates to you as a person who feels you're called to singleness. So Jesus is our model in all these things. Okay? Take it back to Christ. You see he's the model of singleness in a beautiful way. Finally, fifth C, church culture. We need to honour those who are single. Not view them as those who are somehow, like I said earlier, waiting in the wings or you know, it's not quite happened for them yet or what. That is incredibly presumptuous, judgmental, ill-informed, prejudiced, uh, unbiblical. You've just, mis- you've just really missed it if that's how you think about yourself, if you are single, or other people that are single. Also, we must be aware that as single people get older, they'll be more prone to loneliness. Why? Because if the stats are anything to go by, um, more and more of their friends will get married. And so there'll be less and less people to hang around with as easily. Okay, So if your friend gets married, you can still hang out with them, but it's harder. Why? Because they're no longer a free agent. Okay? They can't just come around whenever. They've got to make sure that they're doing it in a way that honours their husband and that they're, they're making that marriage relationship a priority. And so therefore what tends to happen is as single people get older, it can be harder and harder for them to connect with really meaningful friendships. So as a church, we must give special honour and attention to that and to um, giving open home and just befriending and making sure we're just honouring them there. Not in a way that, as I said, I hope for you to realise, not in a way that's at all patronising, just being aware of the fact that there is not that companionship that the married people enjoy. Okay? So we've, got to, we've just got to fill the gap there. It's really important that we do that. Um, so to conclude, <laughs> Paul seems to be saying that due to the age that we live in, no longer a playground but a battleground, there are many advantages for Christian singles. <laughs> Paul extols those advantages and, those, uh, and, and desire, he desires them for the Corinthians. He wants the Corinthians to enjoy those advantages, but he recognises actually they're not for all. That not everyone will be able to live that life. You can't just call everyone to it. That's wrong and ungodly and it doesn't give account for God's calling on people's life and what he's gifted them for. There's a grace endowment for it. Um, and for those who have been endowed that way, 
Um, or maybe feel, actually, I haven't, but you know what the reality is, is I do feel, you know, I'd love to be married, but it just hasn't happened. Either way, it's not asked to judge whether it's that or whether it's that. But those who, who at the moment, um, aren't married, which should be the vast majority at Revelation Church, um, we need to, just needs to be lots of esteem and lots of honour and not to be viewed as somehow incomplete or strange or unfulfilled. And we need to bear in mind the whole time that we have been called primarily for the age to come. Where those of us that are married will no longer be married. Okay? That's when that relationship finishes because it's a temporary relationship. And we're just, so we remain brother, I'll remain brother and sister in the Lord with Divina, but we'll no, longer, we'll no longer be husband and wife. And eternity goes on for a lot longer than this life. It's kind of obvious statement number 10, but it's worth saying. And, and we need to just remember that and bear that in mind. Therefore, our, our primary identity is not in that we're a husband or wife, but it's that we are of God's people and that he has won us through the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are united in Christ and by the Spirit and that those relationships that we have together will last forever. So we need to invest in them and make sure that we are giving them appropriate attention. Amen? Amen. Okay, any questions? Louis? Um, if marriage is more than just falling in love, then it's a calling upon your life. Yep. And so... Um, uh, celibacy is an equal calling to that it's calling upon your life yep. why does the church seem to be so averse to celibacy vows when people who are called to marriage make vows mm-hmm. to stay with that person for the rest of their life mm-hmm. but the Protestant church doesn't really seem to like anyone saying I'm going to vow to live a life of celibacy but yet Jesus says that you'll make yourself a unit for the kingdom mm-hmm. and Paul seems to talk about it as if it's a lifelong thing rather than That's an excellent question. Why is the church fine with marriage vows? I'm just going to sum it up for them. Why is the church fine with marriage vows but doesn't seem fine with celibacy vows? Articulated a lot better than that by Louis. And that's an excellent question. I think um, probably after you saying that, it would be hard for me to give a defence that stood up uh, theologically. I could give a pastoral defence and it would be this. If someone came to me and said... um, So for example, someone came up after this morning's sermon, same sermon, and said, look, I'd I'd never considered this. I'd always just assumed I was going to be married. Can I, maybe I just need to just take a hold of this celibacy thing for a period of time, just say I'm going to do that for a set period of time. What do you think? Uh, and my advice to them, because that's a kind of a vow. If you say that, it's a big deal before God. And my advice to them was, uh, I would be a bit concerned if you did that, um, because um, what if you did that, you said for the next three years or whatever, and then next month, you know, dream ticket walks in the room, what then? Because if then, if you come back to me and say, do you know what, I said that, but man alive, look at her. What would I do pastorally? I'd say, mate, you are bound by that vow. Vows are very serious things. I'm not sure that we are encouraged uh, to make them scripturally. Obviously, Marriage vows, yeah. So theologically, I'm just, I'm just giving partial advice that I think sometimes it, something can seem very, very desirable. And then, it's, now in the same way, you hit the same thing partially with people that get married and then say, flip, what have I done? Yeah, you do. You hit the same thing. They say, this is a nightmare. <coughs> what do you do at that point where you say, sorry, buster? <laughs> you know, you made a vow for the Lord. It's not an option. Um, so it's, you face pastorally, I guess, the same difficulty in that sense. So, so, so what I would say is theologically, I, I, at this stage, nothing comes to mind. Okay? Um, pastorally, I just think it's kind of probably, maybe it's easier, 
again, I could be totally hopelessly wrong here, but maybe it's, maybe you're more, you, one, one would be more prone to make a celibacy vow without giving it the proper thought and preparation, which one would probably give to making a marriage vow. And therefore, the likelihood perhaps would be that they would find themselves in that tricky situation e- easier, just because it's probably harder to work through with a celibacy vow, is this thing going to work or not? With a marriage vow, it's somewhat easier to work through. Um, it, it, there's just, there are particular dynamics which help to make it a bit more. And I just think at the end of the day, um, you can probably live celibate to the glory of God without a vow, just as well as you can with a vow. It wouldn't be any less spiritual. So they're, they're, those are my thoughts on it, but they may not be amazing. Any other questions? Ed. Why do you think we have so few um, celibate Christians in the Western Church? Why do we have so few celibate Christians in the Western Church? Probably because it hasn't been preached about enough. You get what you preach for, generally speaking. And if all you ever talk about is marriage and how great it is, which it is, but you never speak about this, then people tend to just, you, you know, you read between the lines, don't you? And, you know, it becomes almost an argument from silence. Well, that's no good and that's great. So we've got to make sure that that's not handled. I think that's probably why. There's some great examples. Two great examples in the Western church um, would be uh, John Stott and Mike Pilavachi, who come to mind as outstanding examples. I'm sure there's loads more. Um, obviously, Jackie Pullinger was an outstanding example for, for decades. And she did get married and lost her husband pretty soon after to, I think it was cancer. But it's uh, outstanding example as well for decades. Um, lots of historical great examples that we could look to, but yeah, I mean, that's probably what it is. Everyone, no one talks about it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I saw a flowing hand. I'm in an evangelist mood tonight. <laughs> when it comes to like, um, like mission and stuff, say you say it's easy when you're single. Yeah. There's so many people like you're sending people out to other countries and say it'd be great if they had a, <laughs> or they had a wife. Yes. Very good. Mentality, Malachi, yes. Home, so. Excellent question. So, a friend of mine went to plant a church in a nation in North Africa, Islamic nation, as is a uh, single guy, and did, did okay for a few years, you know, won a few, and it was great. But uh, obviously, won fellas, because in that setting, you, don't, you just wouldn't talk to, you know, women. Um, and it was, a bit just like, it was a bit like a boys' club, really. It wasn't like, it wasn't like a church. Do you, do you know what I mean? Um, not only so, in that culture, if you're not married, you're seen as a boy. So he wasn't taken seriously by some of the married guys he was trying to reach. So culturally there, so his singleness enabled him to just go, but there came a point where he realised, which coincided nicely with him meeting a nice woman, but it made him realise that actually to build something here that is going to fit this setting, it's going to be a lot better. One thing I will say is that, and it's, just, it's not theological doctrine, it's, just, it's an observation, is that maybe it's easier to be single if you have an itinerant ministry, um, a travelling ministry, but easier to be married if you are in one location. I'm talking now in terms of leadership. Why do I say that? Because um, if you're leading something, so I've known a couple of guys who've gone to uh, plant church. No, one guy I think they meant to plant a church. Um, single, single man, um, uh, great, good, godly, and all that. But um, experienced a number of difficulties. One of them was when he could only hands-on kind of really shepherd half of his flock if you like because just to have one on one you know it was more difficult if he was going to meet with a woman pastor you have to find another another woman who's free to do it, it was just logistically it was more difficult secondly um, he loads of the women in the church had crushes on him 
and it was just really complicated. And it was like, you know, that's hard, isn't it? It's just hard, you know. Um, I think there were numbers of single women in the uh, congregation. He was a good-looking, godly guy, and he was just very, you know, viable, you know. Siren, viable, woo, woo, vi- viable, you know, husband, woo, yeah. And it was just, it was complicated. It was complicated, it was hard, it was really hard. So I think on that, opening up home and hospitality, I think that stuff's easier. I just think it's easier, okay? If you're in that, in that sort of setting where you're kind of shepherding the flock thing, but if you're going from place to place, it's a bit more itinerant, and really more of what you're doing there is really you're probably going to other people's homes, but bringing teaching, bringing this kind of stuff. Um, I think it's easier in that sense, because you, you, know, you haven't got sort of a family on your back. You know, it's, it's, just, it's easier to live light in that sense. So this is an observation. But. Okay. All right, well, in there, um, I hope it was helpful. Um, Subjects like this don't always lead naturally into inspirational praise and worship. I'm aware of that. Um, but I think they're worth tackling. Okay? I think it, it means that we build a depth of maturity and understanding and doctrine on, on, a, on, a, on a breadth of issues, which we need to do. We're going to stay the course and we're going to build well. Okay? So this is totally spiritual, totally important that we understand. This is scripture. Okay? So we should be able to engage straight back in, honouring our great single Messiah. Yeah? He's wonderful, isn't he? And uh, we're mad about him. And I think we just need to just praise and worship him some more. We'll take the bread and the wine. We do this every week um, that we meet.